Hello, I'm Jensen Beeler. And I'm Quentin Wilson. And together we are the Two Enthusiast Podcast, a weekly motorcycle podcasting show that is continuing to push our pro kickstand agenda. <laughs> Brought to you by AGV and Dainese and the Dainese stores of North America. So thank you for their support. Brapped to us by. Brapped. Ooh. Yeah. yeah. Right. Write that down. Right there. That's a good idea. I don't have I like to. That. I just put it down in the, uh, it's on zeros and ones now. <laughs> right. Uh, at least put it in the show notes so I can go back. Oh, yeah, and get that's it. totally okay. Cool. Totally going to happen. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. Absolutely. I'm actually, Quentin, I'm actually going to, one of my goals this weekend is to put together a two enthusiast website. By saying that, I have automatically delayed it by two weeks. <laughs> but that I think would be a good thing to put it would be. there. It would, would be, be really would be good. Show notes and pictures of my cat. Which you've done a remarkable job for yourself, your curation of your own personal. Instagram. My, my personal Instagram, it, the, the tagline literally is fewer motorcycles, more cats. Yeah. Because my asphalt and rubber feed is just all bikes. Bikes, bikes, bikes. How boring when it's you not. could have Coda Kitty. Coda Kitty. Literally named it after, I named my cat after the Circuit of the Americas. Yeah. Which is fitting because this is like part two, part three, might even be part four of our Texan showdown, hoedown, kickstands down. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. good alliteration. So that yeah, is. Yeah, right. Uh, it's not, I don't think not that's technically alliteration. alliteration yeah. It's kind of like it. There's words. Yeah. I don't know what the it's word rhyming. is. It's rhyming. I like the rhyming. Yeah. There's good symmetry to it. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Good um, synergies. Good brapajuia in. <laughs> Anyways. But yeah, we, we last show we talked about riding the Suzuki GSXR 1000. Literally a day later, we were back at the track with Aprilia riding the 2017 V4 lineup that they have. So that's the two RSV4 models, the RR and the RF, and the two Tuono V4 models, the 1100 uh, Factory and the 1100 RR. So a lot of bikes to talk about in this show, and we've got a good interview with Miguel Galuzzi, who was, or still is, I should say, the head of design for the Piaggio groups. He we sat down and talked to us about all sorts of cool motorbike things. This is the things. dude that designed the original Ducati Monster. That's He's all the I've, dude. That's all I have to He's say. He's the dude. Miguel, my, my, my mic is on a stand, or else I drop it. Right. Miguel is a super cool dude. Uh, I've talked to him a little bit before. Uh, really switched on. Really passionate about bikes. He was up here recently in Portland, checking out the one show. So we had a really good conversation with him about that. That'll be towards the end of this show. But first, Quentin, I want to talk to you about these bikes we rode. And I think to get through it, I want to talk mostly about the RSV4s, knowing that most of what we say about them is true about the Tuonos. And then maybe at the end, we can kind of say how the Tuono is different from the sure. RSV4. Yeah. So the RSV4 is kind of interesting from the perspective of, of having a back-to-back experience with Suzuki because Suzuki had such a long drought of not updating their their superbike and then came out with a new model. Whereas Aprilia is like the opposite. Like the original RSV4 really is almost as old it, it almost i want to say it's oh, eight, almost, oh, nine, yeah, oh, nine. Yeah. yeah so but instead of kind of but they've iterated on it about every year or so every one to two years they keep improving upon this machine and it's it's and i'll be straight up one of my favorite super bikes has been from day one 
And one of the things that I think people don't know about it is the fact that it was the original Superbike to come with an IMU. All the way back in 2009, that was the the whammy bammy special thing that it brought was this MotoGP derived technology using, I don't know if it was a six axis or a five axis back then. I think it was six axis. IMU had some of the best electronics on the market when it came out. And I would say still at the pointy end of things, even though the design is kind of getting long in the tooth, but they've, they've done a really good job of iterating on it for each model year. And for this year, obviously with Euro four emissions, they had to change a lot of stuff inside the engine. They made a lot of changes to the electronics, um, you know, for a bike that kind of looks like the old one feels like the old one, a fair amount of new things going on underneath the hood. Yeah. And it's really good. It's really good. Really good. It's, I, we did this, we did this with the Suzuki. Um, give me a score ten. one to 10. It's wow. 10. 10. Yeah. I, I, I thought you would at least head your bets. No, it's a 10. Like if you, you, you can't right now, thousand CC or open class sport bike. That's the bike for you. They're, isn't one that's better there's equals i'm sure okay, okay. but there's not one that's better so if you're gonna that if that's how you put it, like so a lot of people would be like well there's always imperfections so you can't give her eh, whatever i say this is a 10 this is the measuring stick for a bike that is heavy like so it has some weight to it it's 10 pounds of shit in a five pound bag though the bike's small and it's always been like looking like a 250. It's like teeny. Once you get on it, it feels pretty small. It actually has a cockpit similar to a Yamaha R6, bizarrely. The way everything's shaped, it's really small. But it's heavy. It's got some heft. But you know, you wouldn't know it when you're going down the road on it. That's for sure. And it's dated and a little bit in looks. But it's a it's a handsome machine. Handsome? Handsome. Like, like, ha- like, 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 when handsome? you go, when you, we, we, <laughs> I don't even want to do the joke. <laughs> you shouldn't do the joke. Winsome. It's a winsome. You, you win some, you, you lose win. some, you handsome. So that that for me would be the only things that you could mark down if you were like, oh, I'm gonna give, I'm gonna give it a 9.5 because the looks and the weight. Uh, but I don't know. The weight comes with excellence. So the engine's really good, the brakes really good, suspension's really good. All right, all that stuff's so good that. I don't care if it's heavy. It doesn't matter that it's heavy. It doesn't matter that it, it feels a little bit more heavy than others. Um, so yeah, that's that's what I say. Ten. Wow. Okay. I, I'm I'm a little bit more reserved. I'm still going. It's at least a nine, nine and a half. It is it is heavy, and and we did have the benefit of of riding it back to back with uh, the Suzuki the day before, and you can feel through like the S's where it's it's heavier in that transition. Um, and these S's are high speed, as we said in the Suzuki episode. High speed, really interesting test of a bike's mass and how it goes from, you basically have to go from full lean, maybe not quite, but close to full lean, uh, left, right, left, right. And it's a fascinating situation. And you could tell, number one, that it was a little bit harder to maneuver, but you could still maneuver it. It just took a little bit of muscle to do it with the than the, the GSXR. But then when you rode the RF after riding the RR, you could tell immediately that it had lighter weight wheels. It just it just flicked out a little bit. It all it was basically the same as the Suzuki stock, I felt, by the time you got on the R R F version. So in this case, with this bike, I get out immediately. I, I we you, me, and I think Sam Fleming were the only people that were carryovers from the GSXR. Yeah. So all the three of us plus there was a handful of super fast journalists there. 
Kent Kanitsugu was definitely one of them. Um, Zach Quartz, Bradley Adams. Yeah, so all super hall assers yeah. that had been on the track before in the past and were immediately fast. So all of us were able to get out and like it was really comfortable to be able to follow a bunch of people and not have them immediately peel off and burn off so that I was comfortable and happy right off the bat. The bike was just unreal easy to ride right off the bat. Unreal. Un- unreal comfortable. Like I was super comfortable on the Suzuki, but holy shit, this bike was just better on every level, every level. That's the tragedy I felt for for the weekend is is I don't know if I would be as excited about the RSV4. I, I definitely would be excited. I just don't know if I'd be at this level if I hadn't ridden the Suzuki right beforehand and had like a baseline to, to judge it by because man, did it do a lot of things really, really well. And And truthfully, I think my only complaint is that transition yeah, it was a little harder uh, to ride in a couple of spots. That transition weight. You had and it's to, a chassis thing. It's not a suspension thing. Sorry. It's a yeah, chassis absolutely, thing. Absolutely, for sure. Um and 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 the proof of that too is like when we go back and forth with the the RR model, which is seventeen thousand dollars, to the RF model, which is twenty three thousand dollars, which is really just differences, some a couple electronic things, but it's really just wheels and suspension, forged aluminum wheels. And that Olin suspension, I mean, those wheels, like you can tell the transition. Right off the bat. You're like, oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And the suspension's like, yeah, yeah. I'm sure it's good. Because the Showa suspension. Well, is it Showa? I thought it was Saks. Oh, you're right, Saks. Yeah. I got S's in my head. Surprisingly good. Really, now, really good. Now, here's the deal. If I'm looking at the long game for that, and with my experience of the past, I would say the Saks is going to, no pun intended, sack out after a while. It's going to get sloppier quicker than the Olin's, and it's going to be more difficult to deal with as far as rebuilding. Is that worth $7,000? Holy crap, it's $7,000 difference. No, it's not six. $6,000. What did you say? It's twenty four, seventeen, and 23. 23. Okay, sorry. So $6,000 difference. I'm buying the RR. I might put a, a TTX Olin shock on it, but the first thing I'd do is put wheels on it, and I'd be done. Don't need to put brakes on it. Doesn't need any quick shift. I'd have to figure out a way to do GP shift. Um, but, dude, it's funny. You remember in the Jixer episode, I was telling you, I, or sorry, the Suzuki episode, I was un- I was pretty comfortable with that bike in standard shift, but had them switch to GP because I was going to be more comfortable to ride faster. I never had one complaint about that standard shift on the Aprilia. I didn't even think about it. I was just doing it. Mainly because that auto blip downshift was so superb. Oh my god! Yeah. And the slipper clutch, something we didn't talk about. The Suzuki is the slipper clutch. That's worked, what I was tr- trying but to it, remember. But yeah, but it it slipped back into place really quick. It hooked it back up way too yeah. quick. Which for is my, which is normal because if you don't do that, you're going to burn up clutches. Street people are just going to burn up clutches, right? This Aprilia though, whatever their mechanism is, oh my god, it was so superb. You just click 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 and it would blip 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 and you didn't have to touch anything and yeah it's pressing the easy button and one right of, and one of the things i had to learn because i had a couple issues with my shifting at first and then we started talking to the guys and they're like the the system actually has nose with the gearing when you can click so i had a couple times where i was trying to click down because i like to jam through the gears real quick and then let the slipper clutch absorb the pain as it were um but their system you, is you set don't up. have any mechanical sympathy do you none 
No, I'm not. Have you seen? You've seen my bikes, right? Yeah. You see me turn a wrench. Yeah, that's true. This but should not surprise I guess, you. But if you, if there's, if that's any indication, I neither do I. <laughs> <laughs> well, the yeah. cobbler always is the last I to have think, the shoes, right? Yeah, but I think I think our levels of OCD are very different. Where I'm very, you know, everything's got its place and it's neat and it's tidy and it does its thing. And you're, let's say, a little bit more scattered. Yeah. For sure, with your belongings, and oh, things yeah. like that, no doubt, and and, and that's like, like you have, I like, like my, my bike's like if I have a little scratch on it, it eats me up inside. Whereas like I go down and look at your Multistrada sometimes. Crashed. The thing is, basically and I'm just crashed. like, you've seen better days, honey. We should but, just take you outside the woodshed. And, and I hate, I hate that. I used to hate the, the, not hate, but I used to think it was, it was be frustrated. There's people that do that on purpose. They love to ride bags of smashed asshole the, bikes. The, the rat bike. Yep. Yeah. That bike is bag smashed assholes, and I love the fact that I can fucking haul ass around you on that bike. Right? Yeah. That's that's a that's a thing that a lot of people do, and it's not my intention. It was just cheap, and I don't care about painting it that much, but I will eventually. But even then, you look at my SD2 with 140 thousand miles on it. It's beat up. It's it's got it's aged. What, what are you gonna do? I let that go after a while. I never had OCD or any type of anal retentiveness. I had to learn it when I was working in racing. You, it's learned OCD. It's a strange thing or a learned retentiveness that I, it works really well when you're setting up pits, when you're working on race bikes, when you're doing suspension, when you're building engines, when you're working with Michael Sizz, when you're working in a clean environment from the start. But dude, you get home and you get a beer and you just want to change your clutch and your bike it's just tools everywhere and the all the fucks they're they're none of them are they're given strewn about they're, they're not in the bag they're not in bag but they're not given away they're all just around so that's <laughs> they're the thing. loitering <laughs> so for me uh bikes that are are a little rough around the edges are fine um why are we talking about this with the aprilia what did we start yeah, dude right no correlation because the bike is so right and tight yeah, I guess so. But right. we were t- we were talking about slipper clutches, and and the oh, point I, and the point I was yeah. trying to make was the the Aprilia system has it figured out when you can downshift, especially in the downshifts, when you can do so without peril to the mechanical components, and it won't let you shift um, yeah. when when it when it, right. it judges it's, things it's, as so, which I found to be kind of a conservative estimate on what it thought was right and what I thought was right. We differed on opinion there. But it is pretty clever. I and never had one miss shift though, so and I don't. I like the dude. I raced one twenty fives. It was it was six gear to first. Click 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 click. Ring right. That would be what it, you you just do. You do it all at one time because there was no mass to the motor, and it would just it would be you didn't need a slipper clutch. So I used to do that, and but then on the racing Ducatis, for sure, you had to be very. You actually have to time your downshifts. Uh, to, you know, like on the A forty eight, I would do downshift downshift hold downshift downshift hold and then to first or something like that that you'd have to think about it you can't just click 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 even again talking about say with the gsxr you had to know that the ratio differences sometimes there was gaps and in this the aprilia dude close ratio gearbox immediately it was first gear you could do all those corners that i was just pissed off at with the gsxr in first gear you could do all of them in first gear and just super power smooth. so smooth. out of them and it was so beautiful uh-huh. it was so much faster right off the bat i played with the traction control level and that was it i didn't have to touch any suspension i didn't have to touch the brake levers i didn't even have to change the positions of them i got on the bike and i just rode and i was immediately like trying to 
do things to the bike that would make me think, well, maybe there, maybe it could be a problem here. Maybe, maybe I'm going to go into this corner and overcook it. Maybe I'm just going to be a meathead and late break to the point where I'm going to overshoot. What does the bike do? I'm going to trail break here. It works really well. I'm going to get all the braking done a straight line. It worked really well. I'm going to ham fist it on the way out. Holy crap. Does that work? Well, I mean, it, it just wouldn't do anything wrong. The brakes were unreal good, like so good. And that also goes to suspension and tires. Tires were as shipped Super Corsa uh, yeah. Pirellis. Super Corsa shipped. SP Pirellis. Which so are another DOT race tire. Yep, but that's how they come. That's how the bike gets shipped to you. That's what you get. The only bike that didn't have that was the Tuono 1100 yeah. RR, yeah, yeah. which had the Rosso 3s, I believe. Fair enough. But the, the other ones had this so immediate comfort. They were going away towards the end of the day, whereas the, those, the Bridgestones the day before had... Uh, I had a little bit more longevity and I think we were going pretty fast and doing a lot more laps, but man, all the, we were sharing bikes in a different way with the journalists. And I think a lot of people were, were burning these things up and riding them hard. Uh, one issue I had was the switch, which is super handy to change the traction control on the fly. You can use your thumb and your forefinger. Yeah. It's, it's right. It, it, there's a couple bikes that have this. I think the Ducati Superleggera. Uh, how long has the Aprilia had that function? From day fucking one, my man. Really? Yeah. yeah. That, that was one of the cool things. I mean, it was a little, at first, I, I definitely thought it was a, a little crowded of a cockpit having all those buttons. But um, yeah, no, it's it's been there from from the beginning. Cool. And, it's, and you can, you're watching other manufacturers copy them. And it is something directly from MotoGP because... That's where it comes from. And it makes sense. You you would have index finger, thumb, easy access as you're going down a straightaway or whatever to click, 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 click. I uh, found myself running into the to the trash control, you know, light me up Battlestar Galactica style uh, <laughs> halfway through the lap the, after probably the first session. And it was because my thumb... Uh, however, I was positioning my hand was activating the trash control to go up, so to be more interference. That was a bit weird, and I, it took me a while to figure out exactly what was going on because, you know, I was like, "I'm, dude, this feels good. I'm putting it in four. Whoa, this feels really. I'm going to put it in three. Ooh, I'm going to do two, right? And then by the end of a lap, after just experiment, I'm like, either I'm a a, a god amongst people because I'm getting the trash control to come on and level two uh, in this high-speed sweeper, or I look down and, oh, I'm at seven. What the <laughs> hell? And it made a huge difference, right? Huge difference. So that's not, well, number one, that you can do that, so you got to be really careful with it. But number two, I just switched it back in. It was pretty easy. But by the next straightaway, I was able to click, 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 go back into two, and then be mindful of it. Uh, didn't have to do anything else. I think I played with a couple of the other settings, but didn't feel anything because I, you know, I just wasn't, well, what were the other settings that you could so, easily change? There was wheelie a, control. the wheelie control, the ABS, and off the top of my head, I'm going to say wheelie control. Was it launch control? It wasn't launch control. Launch control was its own little button. Yeah. There were a lot of buttons. It rear could, wheel. might have been rear wheel lift. It, there was a lot of confusing things. I wasn't See, I didn't about, think it was that confusing. I think, I think in the past, and that's been one of my complaints with Aprilia, is that their dashboard and their buttons and and it used to be you had to go through the menus there was like this whole menu system sure. and then they had different dashes for track and race and street and all that stuff 
and it was really overly complicated. And this is good. I'm just saying, no matter how good, if you've got 20 different things to change, it's a lot to think about. And I wasn't going to do that. I was going to go on merit. How did they have the bike set up? For me, the traction control level was the only thing that was like serious that I wanted to change. And that was it. Uh, so I, I didn't mind. Uh, but I think I played with wheelie control once because it felt like it was interfering a little bit too much. So it's traction control, the ABS mode, wheelie control, and launch control. Got Those it. are the three. And I never played with launch control. I never played with launch control. Um, I played around with wheelie control a lot just because I was yeah. having fun and I'm feeling good and I wanted to be a jerk, especially with the Tuano. When I was kind of at the end of the day, I was like, I just want to pop wheelies and and lock up the rear and do my little squidly things, Sure, which you should do on a street bike. Like for me, or sorry, not a street bike, but a street fighter. For me, the measure of a good street fighter is how much of a jerk you can be on that bike. And like how, let's let's get it properly slide wise. Hack it in and then yeah. power and wheelie it That's out. all I sure. want to do. I want to do wheelie. I want to do dank wheelies, bro. And slide a juia around the turns. And I didn't have anything to do with that. Uh, by right. the time I got on a Tuano... Well, you're a better man than I am. I just was like, I'll see how this goes. It felt good. Didn't want to crash it. Got on the, the base model Tuano, which is a... The 1100 V4 RR. This is, this is my main complaint with... We've been saying this for years. It's the alphabet soup. The base model is the 2017 Aprilia Tuono V4 1100 RR ABS. Okay. That bike had those tires on it. <laughs> I went pretty quick right off the bat and then had a really nasty front end slide. I was like, meh. Those are street tires. I've definitely done yeah. track days on those tires on my yeah, R1. Fine. And just, you can do it, but it's not like the super courses. Especially not, not after a day and a half of epic grip, confidence, happiness, goodness, epic bikes, everything to be the last one for me to get on that bike with those tires after dude, all the journos would get on those bikes and were just hacking them sideways, coming in the pits and riding the shit out of them. They weren't on warmers. They weren't getting heat cycled or they were getting heat cycled getting heat way more yeah. than the other ones, which are on warmers. So uh, all fair play to that. It's not the Pirellis and it wasn't the bike. It just was, I just had a front end slide that I, you know, again, I, I, well, uh, on the, on the GSXR show, I say, I have a tendency to load the front up and then tuck the front going in. And I didn't want to do that. So as soon as I felt that, I'm like, all right, that's it. I'm done. So the RSV4 RR was my pick. Easy. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. No reason for me to buy, spend the money. I would say drop in, drop in kit if you had to on the forks. Uh, TTX shock. It's going to cost you some money between that and some wheels. And I don't need carbon fiber wheels. I just need forged aluminum wheels. Do that, and you know you're 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 fine, right? Buy some buy some bodywork and a set of rear sets that allows you to do buy do, some warmers and buy some track days and tires, just yeah. right. That tires. bike is a Get weapon. Yourself a tire sponsorship and all the way go go up for sure. Super weapon, man. I mean that that way rather have that than a twelve ninety nine. Way rather have that than a BMW. It has soul. It had the high RPM engine, which is interesting that they those things freaking rev. It was like fourteen grand, right? I don't remember off the top of my head with the red line that sounds about right oh dude 14-ish i just remember down the back straight it was i was hitting the same top speeds i was hitting on the jixer yeah for sure and And about a buck 75 and then i'm grabbing the binders and it did yeah a little bit of air buffeting going on there because the bike is a little bit i had a lot more air buffeting sure i had a lot more i'm i'm broad shouldered i'm a lot taller than you well not a lot but i got a lot more torso than you dude three inches taller than me right at least and it's all on my it's all on my torso guarantee i bet we're the same insane 
Um, but I had a really hard time. That was my biggest struggle was getting behind that windscreen. And I just, I could feel it on my shoulders. Like I just, there was just nowhere I was going to yeah, go that wasn't going to get blown on my shoulders. That was my, I wouldn't say it was like my biggest problem with the bike, but that was definitely an issue that, that stood out to me that I think will vary depending on, on what, you know, what kind of rider size you are. Yeah, sure. Um, I was going to ask you, Quentin, what would you say are your three high points from that bike? And what are your three low points? All right. So that on the uh, on the RR the low just, point just, yeah just talking the RSV4 in general, in general would be the the it, it you you feel the heft in the left right right left transitions not necessarily going into any given corner but definitely left right transitions you yeah. feel it yeah wasn't horrible but it was of note um, it's probably I would say just kind of just spitballing it it might be the worst in class when it comes to side to side transitions. Yeah. I could see that weight easily. transitions, not tra- not chassis corner feel. Someone we had this yep. conversation in, on my article about it. Um, you know, someone's like, "Oh, well, that sounds like a suspension issue." Nope. Like, no, 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 no. 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 It has no. nothing to do with the feel. It has nothing it to might do with that. a little bit. Like if you if you really had the thing f- screwed up with uh, your spring rates and it was doing some sort of a pogoing action, or I mean, really bad. Not like the bike wasn't uh, keeping its. Uh, uh, geometry right as you're going through I, right. that could be suspension i'm not going to say it's not i'm just going to tell you it wasn't in this case the suspension felt really good as shipped almost like the base model gsxr like that yeah. the show us stuff on that both of the bikes it's, it it's, shows you it, it shows you how every, far we've come everything is so high level because if you'd have done this in 2001 i guarantee in fact i can tell you from 2004 i got to ride all the big thousands at that time. And that was when I did motorcycle daily deal. And we rode all of them on the street. And you could tell, man, the suspension was markedly different. The chassis were markedly different. And you really had to be careful with those bikes to set them up correctly. Nowadays, everything's sharpened up pretty good and they're awesome. So this bike, I would say that was one. I, I'll talk about the goods. Let me see if I can come up with the bad. No, I'm not. I'm not even. I'm not even <laughs> no, kidding. No, I know. I, that's why I'm like. I'm really. I'm really. I put you uh, on the spot. I probably should have warned well, you before the, the show. Yeah, okay, so the 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 fairings are look good, but they're dated. Uh, for me, it's dated. The thing looks like 2009, and it's 2017. And I would like to see something. I don't necessarily though think that it should look like their MotoGP bike because the MotoGP bike's a little bit boring. Um, I don't know, man. I, I don't know what, what you would do other than simplify it a little bit. You know, three headlights, does it need to have that? Could you lose some weight by simplifying some of the stuff? Sure. The tail section is super teeny. The weight, the weight, the balance. Oh, my God. The balance of that bike balance is really so good. So good. You can't it's have heavy, that much weight. heavier bike, but the balance yeah, is spot on. You can't have that much weight and have it feel that good without being perfectly, perfectly balanced. And so rad so the brakes the new 330 rotors this year i guess that is the first time they have used that yeah i mean that's something that ducati been using since 2007 or 8 so that's a normal thing for some of these manufacturers that is needed on a bike with that uh, amount of weight and holy shit did it feel good the front brake master cylinder felt fantastic the levers the cockpit Everything was rad, man. The 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 instruments was super good. That no, something that's interesting is on the with the GSXRs, we rode bikes with mirrors on them. Yeah. They had them as shipped. These they had the mirrors taken off. 
which I, a little I can, bit of prep, yeah. It's a normal uh, a thing for, especially an Italian manufacturer. Like, oh, you don't need this, and then they also take off the reflectors and shit like that. But that didn't get in the way. Didn't feel weird. It was just more racy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, point out the the brake setup is a Brembo head to toe yeah. Brembo M50 calipers. Yeah, you know, pretty much. I wouldn't say top of the line, but top of line street stuff. Yeah. Um, radial discs, three thirty millimeter front discs. That's the new jam right now. So it good. They did and Bosch cornering ABS. Bosch? Or Continental. Dude. No, Continental was the uh was, that the, was the Suzuki. Suzuki. Had Bosch. a Continental IMU. I don't know what they would have as a as a uh, ABS unit, but for them all this was ABS. I never got the ABS to come on. Uh luckily. No, I didn't really either. No. Yeah. I mean, again, I'm not I was super uh tentative. Uh, I was still riding pretty well, but not. I'm. I was. I was at the, seven tenths. The man. only. The only time I had it come on was going up the hill to turn one. I got a little bit of a, a stoppy thing going on, and the rear wheel lift kind of kicked it? it in. That's cool. And that was kind of cool to see because it actually got a lot higher than I would have thought before it kicked in. And maybe there's some of that is the uphillness of it. Yeah, or, sure. But um, it was interesting to see that that see, action. And I can't like I'm I'm sitting here thinking. Of all the things that I would have written, because I didn't write anything for this one, yeah. I wrote it for the other. Oh man, I well, can't, I, I can't speak to it enough. I mean, other than losing some weight, which they need to do eventually, but I also know it from a manufacturer standpoint how difficult that would be to do, and still get all, have all the feel and have all the uh, the general goodness of the bike. Well, I think that that I think speaks to kind of the to what it is, right? This is still a motorcycle design that is almost a decade old. You know, eight years ago, nine or eight, seven years ago, that was doing pretty well. You know, and since then, like the the goalposts have kind of been moved because I think it's 452 pounds. I remember weighing one of those because it felt so heavy to me and it was bizarre. And it was 2009. 450 pounds. That's wet weight, right? That's wet. So we weighed one with half a tank of gas. It was 427 pounds. And we weighed a Desmo Sedici RR street bike and it was 427 pounds or 425. Like they were really close to each other with half fuel. Um, this is on, on automotive intercomp scales. And I, I, cause I just felt both of those bikes, even though the, the Ducati has a bunch of carbon fiber and all that, that thing is still a pig. Those bikes are, they're not that good. Like a Desmond Sidici RR, if you're just going to. No, but that, that's known, right? I, I like you're that. not buying that bike because it's the fastest thing around nope. the track. You're buying that thing cause it's fucking awesome. For sure. It makes the right sounds. It does all the things. You're, you're a cool person for it, but it's not going to go fast around a racetrack. Not even close to a 1098R. But, but right? look at the Panigale claimed wet weight 420. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. Like these are claimed sure. wet weights, so you kind of have no, to no, be a like. Panigale is probably well into the threes if you don't have uh, fuel in it. Yeah. And they're they're light, but it's long, and they have a really yeah. long wheelbase and has a really interesting feel to it. Yep. I what I what I was really after was at the time was like V4. This this Aprilia at the time was brand new and was like hot. Um, you know, this was right when they were. I I think the reason why the bike was in there that I we had it on scales was because it was getting that engine swap. The poor bastards had done something with Conrad. Oh right, when it first came out, there was yeah. a Conrad issue. Yeah, and that but they did. So here's the problem: you get you get killed for doing the right thing. You know, by instead of saying, "All right, dealers, we're going to have to swap these Conrad bolts," they were just shipping motors. Right. Yeah. And that worked really well. In fact, but- we talked about that. I don't, you weren't sitting with me at dinner, but I was talking to, I think it was Eric from, from Aprilia USA. And he was talking about like, you know, we, we didn't 
we were comparing it to the to the Yamaha thing. He's like, oh yeah, no, we're just we just replace motors because 100, it's done right. The customer is going to be happier. They're not going to be bitching and moaning about, oh, my monkey of a dealership guy is going to be yeah. working on it, even though the dealership guy is probably trained and perfectly capable of doing yeah, sure, sure. that whole thing because yeah. that's what you have to be to be a dealer. Um, but he's just like, nope, we just did it because that's what you do. And that and that sucked. And I think that for a lot of people, especially for those of us in Ducati, we're over like, ha right? Because it's like, sure. get your shit together, Aprilia. Really? You're going to have that happen with your new wicked should have been badass and it cast a pall uh on that bike in the beginning well, but then most people immediately just got on those things and hauled ass and it was easy to, to yeah, justify yeah I, I think them. i think like we look at yamaha and i don't really think their issue with their transmission affected r1 sales that much or the perception of the r1 or nope. yamaha because yamaha's pedigree goes so far back and is fairly reliable and they did a good job of handling they that did problem. a good job as handling. we said in the podcast when we talked right. about it a year and a half ago, right right and, but i think that's the issue with aprilia is you already have a dealership network that isn't firing in all cylinders yeah you kind of already have this like italian yep. history on thing. the back foot you're already on the back foot so it doesn't help but i look at that bike now and and you know you were struggling to come up with with bad things to say about it and i think my my bad things to say about it would be the fact that it is that older bike you're not going to be able like when you're reusing the same design over and over again you're not going to take 20 pounds out of that bike there's just yeah. nowhere to take it out of nope. not without doing a clean slate chassis engine yep. whatever design shakeup yep. it's just not going to happen so there is some constraints to that and you know talking to um romano the head of you know technical development at, at Aprilia and Aprilia Racing. Head of racing. Yeah. Um, you know, and what they've done internally to to make that engine keep the same horsepower it made before and to still meet Euro 4 compliance. You know, they yep. did a lot of lightning of engine components, a lot yep. of efficiency things. You know, they they increased the the red line by 300 RPMs. So, you know, we're talking pistons, cranks. Yep. Conrods, all that stuff is 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 new. Yep. And you know, when you look at the bike and it still looks the same and it's just bold new graphics externally, you don't realize that like there's all this extra whammy bammy stuff underneath the hood. And in my mind, I'm going like, well, yeah, okay. So as soon as you get that, you know, huge can off and you uncork it a little bit, like there's more potential horsepower in here once you deregulate it. Than, than the old machine. So this thing's going to be even more of a ballistic missile, but no one's going to know because it it's, looks like it's the hard same to see thing. It. It's, hard yeah. to, it's hard to see it. And yeah. it's just got a hashtag on the side now. Yeah. It says Bear Acer on it. Bear Acer. <laughs> I think there's there's probably some head shaking at a pretty USA when we say well, that. But it's so funny because like it didn't take long before I think we hashtagged that because it says B A Racer. Immediately somebody's like, Bear Acer. I'm like, oh, dude, oh, you poor guys. You don't have your shit together yet. You've you've got your bike shit together, but you guys just don't have your shit together yet. Well, I mean, that's I'm not gonna fault anyone for that. That's just kind of like a weird, dude, weird thing. I am okay. You can I, my hashtag. Do you just figure out how you're gonna do a hashtag. hashtag? Just spell it out. Talk, trying. Say it. Right? They're trying. I know they're awesome for that, and I'm glad that they are. But you know, that's what I'm saying. It's not like holy shit, these guys are are horrible. It's like these they're. Ugh. They've got a long hill to climb, and they've got an excellent machine to do it with. So, yeah, I I'm not I'm not gonna lie. Before this, I was not a believer. I had ridden one. I'd done a track day where a, a friend really like desperately wanted me to ride theirs. I think it was a 2011 model. It was great. It felt wonderful. 
I'm not going to crash that person's bike. I was only going to go so fast, but it was really neat. And I was glad to be able to ride that. I mean, shoot, I rode one at Pro Italia when I first got to, I mean, it was early and, and somehow, some way I was, I was down in, in LA and I got to ride one early on. I was like, wow, that's impressive. That works really well. But it was just on the street. This on the front track standpoint, it was good, but it wasn't, it didn't give me that oomph. Of course, riding a bike like that at Coda was, would be epic. And it's reminiscent of the only, you know, other epic track day stuff, but it was way more wicked. It was way smoother and easier and, and fun to ride. And dude, the sound specifically is really good. And it, and the power of the motor is linear, that's linear, thing, linear. Right. Well, that's it's something so we easy should to talk ride. about. The way it makes that power, it's almost deceptive it because is. it's so linear yeah. that you don't get that, like, what we call it, the, the thrush rust. The rush thrust. The rush thrust. Rush, Russian thrust. Thrust rush that's a little bit of tongue tongue teaser um but you don't get that sensation of the bike accelerating because no. the acceleration it's already is happening. constant yeah it's already happening so but but it's still that was the thing i love the most about that bike is is it, the power just comes on so smooth and the ride by wire and the throttle maps are so spot on that you get it leaned over you know once you finally lean it over to its side it takes a little bit longer but once it's there really neutral really you can handle it really well and you can really just modulate the power with real subtle strokes and it's not going to get all lurchy on you and it's not going to get all surgy and then you know you get past your apex and you know x on the corner you can just fucking whack that throttle and all the ones and zeros do what they're supposed to do and the rear wheel kind of squiggles out does a little slide and it comes back in line and it starts pedaling up the power and it's just butter butter all the way out through the the corner exit no, and also keep in mind, this was an interesting thing for us and bad in some ways that through the lens of two people that had ridden the GSX-R the day before, it was like, holy crap, 17 grand for this bike. Yeah. Done. Like yeah. done. You're going to do 14.5 for that one or 17 for this. It isn't even close. It's not even close. I, like I should have run the numbers before the show to, to see what, see the, what payment the payment different. difference would be. But we're talking... 20 30 bucks dude not even close but yeah. then again you know that's the, it's a different customer it's a different person that's going to take that risk to own a quote-unquote italian machine with the dealer network that isn't good yet and that they're trying to get better you know but this this might be where a negative is actually a positive because this bike is so long in the development cycle they've sorted out all their issues they don't have clutch issues with this oh, thing no, no. anymore. You don't have they don't have transmission yeah, sure. issues yeah. anymore. Like all the kind of little gremlins that kind of popped up in the earlier years really aren't there anymore. So, I mean, I don't know where I would go in Portland to, to pick up an Aprilia. Do we have an Aprilia dealership yeah, yeah. nearby? They, okay. They they have come online and are apparently great. Yeah. But, it, but it'd be one of those things like there are places where you're going to be driving probably a couple hundred miles to get one of these things. And that's. Yeah. That's going to be a factor. It's always going to be a factor. But you're also going to be, like, when, when you're riding that thing wherever, you're not going to pass another one very often. And that is something that's rare nowadays. And that's one of the reasons why I liked getting into, into Italian bikes in the first place is because, you know, straight up, everybody has a GSX-R. They're like the Mustang of, of <laughs> sport bike world, right? Yeah. Um, and that... That's a, for me, it's of note. Like, I get it that, okay, it's good value and it works well. And, you know, everybody thinks it's badass, but uh, I want something a little different. But in this case, I want the thing that works well that I'm not going to have to drop a dime on. A, a dime. Like, I know I talked about how you could get make it better relative to the RF, but you, you buy the RR 
And that dude done. Uh, other than say making it better for uh, track day uh, tip overs, like body work and yeah, you and, know, some, and rear sets. But uh, that's always gonna be a thing. No, um, but I'm saying from a performance standpoint, there wasn't a thing, which is why I give it a ten. There wasn't a thing I would change. Everything worked really well, and that was as as shipped as it was. Right. You could probably drop about eight hundred pounds off the exhaust can. I'm sure you could drop 20. I remember the first time I ever weighed an exhaust was on an RSV Miele, the first generation, yeah. the 1999, 2000, the V-twin. Yeah. And those pipes, I mean, everybody talks shit about pipes nowadays. Those things were 20 pounds. And that, I mean, that's a lot. Hanging off the back, I remember yeah. putting it on a scale, you take 20 pounds or you put the new exhaust system on and it weighed like three pounds. It was amazing. That type of stuff is okay, fair enough. That would be something you do, but I wouldn't have to. The bike's so no, balanced that no, no. I don't need yeah. it. It didn't, it's not like it's dragging on the ground like I don't know, 80s era super bikes where you had to change the exhaust or else you were gonna drag it, right? I don't know. So this this bike's good and I would totally own one. I would absolutely own one. Uh valve change, valve adjustments every twenty thousand kilometers. So that's about twelve thousand five hundred miles. Yeah. So pretty standard. Yeah. A little um, bit more than it's going to be pricey. It's going to be better grand. I was talking to them about that. Oh, for sure. It takes a lot to get to that. It's a V. It's a narrow degree V twin and or V four. So it's 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 difficult to get to the to valve covers compared to a lot of other stuff. Okay, fair enough. Twenty thousand kilometers, whatever. Bring it on. But if it's a thousand bucks, okay, that's a, that's something you have to factor in over the course of of. You know, it's not electric, right? But you got to come back to the thing because uh, someone was being a little poopy about it in the comment section. And I was just like. Average mileage for a motorcyclist in the United States is 2,000 miles. So, like, you know, six years from now, if you haven't wadded this bike up in a turn somewhere, like, yeah, thousand bucks. Like, What's, to, where's the return on investment? It's yeah. in you got a superior, a vastly superior machine. I guess it would be interesting to know what is a CBR 1000? What is the, I mean, the Yamaha used to be the big deal when they were 26,000 mile, mile valve adjustment intervals. That was always like, what the F? But this this motor is especially turning at fourteen. Pretty much any time you have any, it's an exponent. Every hundred RPM is exponential at at fourteen thousand RPM, right? If yeah. as far as stresses and issues, so that apparently in this motor they have got a lot of DLC coatings and other friction reduction stuff and micro polished and I mean there's a lot of super trick stuff that they have to to get the longevity. And to get the the the, the gains, or uh, especially yeah, they're making power by spooling it up, right? Spooling it up with less friction, right? Right. So if you can if you can do that, that's how you're going to get it to the rear wheel, and that's what they've done. Uh, we have a good friend that was racing the the last iteration of Aprilia RSV4 um, in the AMA Superstock class, and. They had to go through a, a, a few teething problems with a few components early on, uh, spinning them up w- really fast. Like they were going into the 15s, I think. Like that's a lot. That's really, that's MotoGP level. And apparently the same motor with the um, pneumatic valves, what is the model that you can buy as a, they make this super fancy like works yeah, model thing. The RSV4 FWGP Factory Works Grand Prix, basically. XYZ Element OP. So that bike, the fact that it's basically the same engine and it spins. And, well, you can get it at different trim levels, but yeah, yeah, there is a trim level where you can same get the same engine cases. Yeah. It's the same basic parts. Uh, the structure is there. So yeah, I'm sure the crankshaft is different. I'm sure the pistons are different, the rods, all that stuff. I get it. But the fact that the same structure is there and that thing's probably spinning 17, I would assume to do, to justify pneumatic valves. Holy crap. So interesting stuff. 
that this motor has that long of legs and that they were able to use it as a CRT engine for a while before they finally said, okay, we can only make this go so far. We need to make a bespoke MotoGP bike that is going to be specifically for MotoGP and that's it. And then this is what Romano, I asked a question I asked is I wasn't sure if they even had any shared, not just like the shared casting. I assumed it wasn't a shared casting, but even the shared, um, I don't know, bore uh, centers or uh, places where the, the gears are, 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 are and it was the transmission even closed, et cetera, et cetera. And he's like, no, it's all clean sheet. The MotoGP bike is clean sheet and understandably so. And then when uh, I asked him about the V of the motor, he was very cheeky about it and, uh, and, and gave me a range, <laughs> which I thought was an, of the MotoGP bike. Yeah. Cause you know, the V is actually a very interesting dynamic for, a lot of engines and that I think that started in the well didn't start but it was very prevalent in the formula 1 era especially in the V twin or V10 era when those things were spinning into the 20,000 rpm range because that's how you get power you get power from displacement or spinning either either you're revving it or you got more displacement that's how you make horsepower so that time when formula 1 was whatever 1.5 or 2.5 or 3 liter V10s the angle was critical because you wanted to optimize where certain rods were relative to where certain other rods were under power pulses. And there's an efficiency there, especially when you got 10, 12 cylinders, et cetera. So in the V twin, I don't know if it makes a huge difference, but I bet if, oh, sorry, V four, I bet it does make a difference where the V lies to place this piston in one spot and the angle of the rod here and then the angle of the rod of the one that's under power stroke relative to the one that's on the overlap, et cetera, et cetera. So that's that's why when I asked him, I wanted to know and he was really sheepish about it, which was awesome. And just the fact that I was able to sit next to this guy, Romano, and you're going to have to explain it, say his name. Albastiano. Albastiano. I got to sit next to this guy at dinner. It was like a kid in the candy store level awesome because I didn't know who he was. I have to admit, I came into this very dumb. I was just kind of like, oh, I get to ride motorcycles at Coda. Gotta ride my motorbike right? today. That's it, right? <laughs> yeah. country boy from right? Texas. So I was so stoked that I didn't even think about, well, who would be at this? Who are the higher-ups? Who would be there that's from the team at Coda? Well, sure enough, here I am next to the shit, right? And this guy, we end up having a conversation. Can you imagine what it was like to have me sitting next to the dude that created the the Kajiva 500 Grand Prix bike. Like that was the chassis designer slash engineer of a carbon fiber bike back in the late eighties, early nineties. It was like, Oh my God. But you got to understand too. He probably went back to Italy and everyone asked him Romano. I heard you sat next to the, Quentin Wilson did the two enthusiasts. Did did you talk about kittens or kickstands? Did he show you his kickstand? (laughs) Stop it. So anyway, that was a really special moment for me to, to be, I just wanted everybody that's listening to appreciate how awesome that was for me to not know and then sit there and do the normal. I mean, my, the guys on the team graves used to call me Question Wilson instead of Quentin Wilson because I used to I just ask a lot of Gee, questions. Yeah, I wonder right? where that came from. Yeah, sure. So I asked a lot of questions and I was like having to be questions. tempered yeah. by my, I was like, I don't want to, I don't want to bum this guy out because it's like he didn't know what he was getting into. He knows, he knows journalists, but most journalists have tact and want to get invited next time whereas i'm kind of like 
I don't I don't know. I I I felt like Jack on the Titanic in the movie where he's like, I don't give a shit. I don't, I'm around all these fancy people. I'm never going to see him again. I'm just going to I'm just going to act myself. So I like that's that your go-to metaphor was Leonardo DiCaprio in Titanic. He's so cute. All right. Yeah. Right. I don't judge you. I mean, I do, but yeah. Well, yeah. I wanted to be him. Leonardo Kate Winslet, DiCaprio? right? Kate, I wanted to draw Kate. Winslet. I would like to draw Kate Winslet for sure. Or at that time, I would have more information about you than i wanted to know all right so anyway didn't glean anything other than just and, oh and having miguel galuzzi across the table across the table yeah. and then having them bounce things up because they've been working with each other for a very long time right right and, and you have to understand like i don't know what their their professional relationship is but i know that anytime you get the engineering guy and the design guy together there's oh, always yeah. a little friction yeah because one guy wants to go away one, one i mean put you will never get Pierre Terreblanche and Claudio Domenicali in a room together. Yeah, I bet. It's just not going to happen. Sure. It's just not going to happen. And it's the same I, thing. I don't want it to happen because then another 999 might pipe out. I'm fine with that. Those things are those things are like a fine wine. They're aging with grace and elegance. Mm-hmm. That'll be your next track day bike. You should get rid of your R1 and get one of those. It would probably be good. You might actually ride it. Wah, wah. Yeah. I'm just saying the R1. You the R1 needs some love. And and does it really inspire you? Right. I like. I love. I when I get on my R1, I do enjoy it because okay. I I don't get to ride a lot of butter smooth inline four. That bike, that is just yeah. a Goodyear bike. They're a workhorse bike for sure. That bike does all and the things really well. Except for yours is a, mine is super ratty. Yeah, yours. I was about to say we we're talking about ratty machines, and that thing is that like like sit next to mine. It actually right mechanical masochism. Yeah, that bike. Oh man, that bike. But that's my shtick too. I like finding the guy in the in the paddock that has like the most built out R one, and it's all perfect. And yeah, they polished it and pit right next to him because if you're faster than him, it feels so much better. And you're just like, and you're like, like, oh yeah, my bike's all stock. In fact, I think, I think a couple things fell off of it. That's it's about lighter it. Lighter now. It's a little bit better. Yeah, I didn't need those those bolts or that wheel. No. That would have slowed me down. <laughs> I still have that crazy rear brake hose that was like three feet too long. That's just curled up in a loop and and zip tied to the rear set. Yeah, I mean, if I'm coming around you on that thing, like you're going too slow. Anyways, RSV4. There's, it's hard to say anything anything bad about it. Nope. I do want to talk about the electronics real quick because I do think, and I, I do think Aprilia needs some credit on on something that they've already done really really well. They've they've actually managed to improve upon it because, like I said before, getting around and, and changing the settings, they added a better like little interface joystick button selector thing that makes it so much easier to do all the things. The slide control is awesome. You can't. The only complaint I have maybe on that side is that there's no independent change for the slide control so it's just as <laughs> hey you 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 you, 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 you yeah. scoff but when you can change everything else man okay and and that's the thing now with the r1 and the ducatis are starting to do it now yeah where you can independently change traction control and slide control mm-hmm. whereas on the rsv4 it's linked to a traction control setting you're in yeah but boy does it work right yeah that's why that's why i laugh because it just works it, so yeah well. i mean they got on. the algorithm down but if you can change the wheelie control you should be able to change the slide control that's my thing I guess. 
I, I guess differentiating the traction Why not? control from slide what, what control. What would be the argument to not do it? Yeah, yeah, I guess. Well, because I've seen more people get lost in settings on super bikes than I have with super stock bikes, right? You, you have too many things to change. You're going to go backwards. I guarantee it. I watched it from the top down. I watched it with Aaron Gobert, watched it with Jason DeSalvo, right? And then I've watched it with numerous club racers, right? You get too far into it. Whereas the, the manufacturer can define certain base things that I think then they can lock down. But you're right. If, over the course of time, if I get used to certain slide control, I don't know. I didn't feel the slide control. I'd have to, I'd have to feel what the adjustment does because I was not going to send one of those bikes. I don't know if I ever told you one of the only manufacturer's bikes that I've ever crashed was an Aprilia at Willow Springs Turn 8, which is a 160-mile-an-hour corner. Yeah, fuck that And turn. I... <laughs> I I certainly sent that bike probably 10 or 15 times end over end. That was a very embarrassing thing, and I had to kind of exercise that demon. So I, I was just like, all right. At the end of that day with Aprilia, that was one of the reasons why I just felt a little bit of a eh uh, on that one Tuono. I was like, nope, that's done. And I'd ridden the other Tuono, and it was fantastic. It felt great. But I didn't like it as much as I like a Street Fighter. It's not for, for a bike with handlebars. I want more See? raw, more more i don't know sinewy more i'm glad tactile, you said that right i'm glad you said that because i was talking about that with a couple guys and they were looking at me like i'm crazy yeah and this, and this so, so if we can switch gears from the rsv4 to the Tuono v4 um switch that, gears and 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 we really don't we don't have to take out the cassette transmission to switch gears yeah but there is yeah, one that you can yeah, do that with right? that's cool um I mean, everything I love about the RC4 is kind of what makes me not like the Tuono. Yeah, the just, refinement. It's so refined, <laughs> and it just, it's like a little 250 GP bike, and it just wants you to carry that corner speed and, and just do everything, you know, millimeter perfect every turn and just, and just be that bike that can do that for you. And I love that, like, the Tuono wants to do that for me, but I'm not interested in it. You know, like when I get on a street fighter bike, I'm not worried about hitting my apexes and, and doing everything just perfect right and getting my brake marker absolutely on the spot and just, you know, being being perfect. I keep saying perfect, but that's what like an RC4 yeah, wants perfect. to wants to do. You with want you. it less than perfect. You want it I to want have that some sort to, of weirdness, right? I want that front wheel to come up and I want that rear tire to slide around and I wanna just have gobs of power and just get out of turns. I don't care what gear I'm in. I'm in, I'm in fifth gear. Who cares? I'm getting a lot of torque out of the turn. Let's go. And it does a lot of things really well and it makes good power. Um, you know, they've definitely, you know, Oh, it's super changed the way it, yep. it, it's not a peaky engine anymore. Yep. It's got a nice fatty, uh, middle, middle range, but I, I feel like it's one of those bikes that if you want to go do all those things with it, you kind of have to start turning off all the electronics and all this stuff yeah, because yeah, they sure. just kind of get too far on the way. But then that's dangerous like, with a bike that's that finely honed. Right? I mean, still talking, I think, 172 horsepower or something yeah. like that. I got to look up and the it's, numbers. It's 100 cc's more than the right. RS4. So it has a little bit more of a punch, but that's that's it. Then it doesn't have as much top and it doesn't rev out as much. I think, I think we found the song that you're going to intro this to, and that's Old Dirty Bastards, I Like It Raw. Because that is why I would want the Street Fighter straight up. Street Fighter, Super Duke, oh baby, R, I like, like it raw. That's the thing. Like when I go back to back with like a Super Duke twelve ninety, um, you know, and that's a bike where 
it does all those things and you don't have to start turning all the whistles and bells off to get it to do what you want to do. It, it It's like the engineers in Austria kind of got it like, ah, oh, yeah, you're going to get on a Super Duke. You're going to go, you're going to be a jackass in city streets downtown Portland with this thing, but you still want all <laughs> the whammy bammy stuff. Whereas like the Italians in Nuwale were just like, no, this is, you would just take this to the track and, and it does the thing and you're going to go into Canyon Roads and do the thing. And you're like, yeah, you can do that. And it, and it is great. It would be a great bike to go fast on, you know, backcountry sweepers and, and do all that thing. And you could totally be a race bike. I mean, the fairings on it, it's got a lot of fairing. It's not like it's really that naked of a naked yeah, bike. Yeah, but I I definitely felt uh, very exposed, mainly because it's such a high horsepower thing and such a top speed bike. But I that like when I could tuck down on my Street Fighter and – Keep in mind, I spent 4,500 miles on a Street Fighter and maybe a 1,000 of those miles were on the street. Maybe. I put a lot of track time. And that PIR, which has a three-quarter of a mile long straightaway. So I was used to tucking behind that and putting my hand on the fork tube like flat track style. That bike I could get totally comfortable with and be totally stoked to go fast. This one... I did not feel comfortable with it. Was too manic, and I think maybe that little weird dip in the well, in the in the track at Coda, like right at the top end, right when you're clicking in the fifth or sixth, was super. I don't know. It, it was discombobulating. No, I agree if I can you. be combobulated, the I, back this straight was, was really bumpy, and it did really exacerbate the 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 fact that. And this is probably something that we probably should have started out with. When you you can't just change from clip-ons to a handlebar and expect the bike to all of a sudden handle the same. Because what you've done is you've changed the rider's position. Yep. You've Huge. changed something that's about a third of the, the weight the largest of the vehicle thing system. that you can do. Yes, sure. And now you've changed how high it is. You've changed yeah. how far back it is. Yeah. You do all those things. And that helps exacerbate kind of the... Not the twitchiness of the chassis, but oh, yeah. you definitely could get a little bit more head it shake. Was it and it's one of those things where you're almost like... I want there to be a steering damper on it oh, just yeah. to kind of counteract what's going on there. Oh yeah. Um, but so it didn't need it. It didn't need it. But I, I, but I, if I was I'm track careful with it, that. if I was, if I lived in Austin, Texas and I did a lot of track days at Coda, well, the first things I do would put it would be a street, would well, be a steering damper. Any, any of the listeners that saw my street fighter, a 48 crash know that I'm not a big fan of bikes without steering dampers on racetracks any longer after that. Cause I thought I was good to go after many track days of having a, a kind of a twitchy bike, but never having really worried about it, and then having a really nasty crash. Really nasty. So this this didn't feel like that. It didn't do a weird wobble or anything. No, it just it wasn't just confidence-inspiring. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, I was trying to think of other things about the bike. So we should probably preface, we should have done this a little bit backwards. 15000 for the base model RR version of the Tuono. Seventeen five for the factory edition. That's and not a, bad when you think of all the stuff it's got. <laughs> we forgot to mention with the RSV4 that with the RF model, you got that multimedia thing. Oh, yeah, and they super, showed it to me. Cool. They they hadn't uh, figured out the Bluetooth the the yet. They were going to. It, it isn't very difficult, but there was something with my the phone that I was using that they couldn't get it to hook up. But they showed me the app. I put the app in my phone. Holy crap! So. You can, again, you might want to correct me on this, but from what I, I, I tried to get this clear, you can download a map for a track. So they've got that, they've got tracks that they've already done. That, right. And they had Coda on it. Right. That, that would set the traction control. You plug this in and you would run it and you say, I'm going to Coda. Here's, 
here's your phone on your bike, or maybe it locks in that map, and I want trash control seven on corner five and trash control three on corner six, and you could you well, wasn't could tune. Just, it wasn't just the trash control. You could change all the all the stuff yeah. for every corner, yeah. GPS enabled on a smartphone. Unreal. That I, like it was almost. That's why I downloaded the app. I was like, that can't be true. Yeah. Because I wanted to see how it worked, but I didn't. I didn't end up doing it because I was too excited to ride the bike and had other things to do. Well, and we were also on fifteen minute rotations. Which yeah, was it was too. It's too but, soon, but that would be something I'd want to explore. Worth pointing out, if it doesn't have your track on it, you can trace the track out and then go back and do it. Yeah. So you. So have like, to. if I go to like some random like let's say the McMinnville Cart Track. I don't know why you would take a Tuono there. Yeah, but, but you could do it. I guarantee you they don't have PIR on there. So you go do PIR and you would like map it. Yeah, you would you, you, you would, would activate you would go it. Go ride it and trace it, and then you could come back and it would have the course, and you could set your little marker things all over. But again. then somebody at Aprilia would then have to decide whether they would allow you to use certain trash control at certain corners. I do think there was some sort of thing where Aprilia was an intermediary. Yeah. That I couldn't quite get straight. But I want you imagine somebody being like, oh yeah, I want trash control zero. Your map every should corner, be bro. zero every corner. Yeah, yeah, of course they're not going to do that. Um, they want to optimize it. They want to make sure that the base is the, the most awesome. But I would want to be able to tweak it too. Either way, it was an amazing thing. The idea that you can do that in the Bluetooth and on the RF... That might be worth a thousand bucks easily to somebody. Easily. But you can get it as an add on to the R. And I want to bring it up because it's also on the Tuono factory and it's something you can just kind of. I didn't know you realize that you can add on. That's yeah. awesome. Okay, cool. So that's pretty cool. Um, what would you give the Tuono out of 10? Uh, mm, it had to be, it's an eight for what it does. Yeah. It, again, yeah. I'm taking away the, the fact that I didn't necessarily, it wasn't my jam. But dude, you can't. But refuse, it is, like that's put, the thing, though. It is our jam. We are Street Fighter guys. Yeah, I guess so. You're right. But yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I, it's still an eight. It's still it really, works really well. Really good bike. I just don't know if it's if it's my pick in that category. I think there's other bikes that understand that category. I would I would want to back to back that thing with the Super Duke straight up. And, and that's the thing. I've I've gotten to ride the 2016 or 2015 back to back with the Super Duke, and it's. It's Super Duke time. Super Duke time, Yeah, for sure. I think, again, we, the people listening need to understand our lens as twin owners that love twins. We love twins. It is tough, even with an engine oh, that makes right. that awesome sound. I like V-Force, too. Yeah, no oh. doubt. Don't, but, me, don't bring me down on your ship. You no, know, but you have a lot of twins in your garage. You don't have any V-4s, right? So I would say that's that's a thing. So you got to understand that I had 15 grand, I'd have a V-4 in there. What's that? If I had fifteen, or sorry, if I had seventeen grand, I'd have a V four. Well, on there. then you should freaking send it. Or um, Shane must be listening and have a long term test bike somewhere, right? I'm sure we can put that together. Yeah, right. The the quote unquote long term test, which comes back to the old dirty bastard song, which isn't "I Like It Raw." It's called "Shimmy Shimmy Ya," "Shimmy Yam Shimmy Yay." <laughs> And there's a Shawnee Sean Sean thing going on there somewhere. It's right? only funny because you're like the whitest dude I know. That's why I'm saying it because I had to look up the lyrics because it's, you know, yeah. she, she, yeah. shimmy, she, shimmy, shimmy, ya, shimmy, yam, shimmy, yay. Um, <laughs> what are your thoughts? Factory model versus RR model. Is it worth of the, the Yeah. The factory for sure, just because it felt a lot better. And I think through the lens of the, I mean, the first one, the, the RR is really good. It didn't do anything wrong. 
I just got on those tires and wasn't I was freaked out. Well, so that's a that's a thing. I think that's too where like the twenty five hundred bucks does start making more sense on that with, sure with the wheels. Yep. Just wheels alone is gonna be about twenty yep. two thousand, twenty five hundred dollars. First thing I do to any one of these bikes is wheels. Absolutely. And then suspension and you're just like, Oh, okay, yeah. Sure. And it looks better straight up. I mean, I don't know. The other one looks fine, but uh, yeah, I if I'm gonna if I'm already gonna spend fifteen it's not enough of a stretch. Whereas with the other one, six grand is a freaking stretch. And it would allow me to buy a bunch of aftermarket parts and do cool stuff to it and make it my own. Right. Whereas with this, nah, I wouldn't worry about that. I wouldn't worry about it. Okay. Okay. Well, let's wrap that up. Let's take a, an ad break. And when we come back, we'll do the interview with Miguel Galuzzi. Right on. So Quinn, I'm I'm pretty sure I got emailed some some talking points for this for this ad, but I think I'm gonna go rogue and go with a different direction on this because you got kitted out for some gear for our press launches in our time at Coda. You got to use it for the for the press launches with Suzuki and Aprilia, and you were quite smitten. Like this is like unsolicited, like we're yeah. not like, you know, sketchy milkman. You got off the bike, you're like, this this stuff is rad. So so tell me about what you got and 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 your experience with it. We're gonna have to come back to sketchy milkman. I wanna know what that means. <laughs> yeah, we had a weird neighborhood growing up. Okay. Yeah. All right. Got I'm sorry, but I've got to bring that up. <laughs> All right. So yes, I have race leathers that are usually beat up and I have them emblazoned with Ducati. Why, why, why are they why are they right. beat up? I crash I crashed that. Are you a crasher? And the one the the, the only good set that looks semi decent has Ducati all over it and it would be Cuz that's think, the one you've crashed in the least. Let's just preface this. Right? It, the least. Cuz those, those are the newest ones. Yeah. Right. So um <laughs> that I I I'm going to a press launch getting invited having the privilege to go to these press launches like dude, I'm going to have to buy a suit um and, or, or, or somehow some way procure a suit that is not branded with another manufacturer so we can do this. And you brought up, hey, I know some people. Let's, let's see what we, we can do. We got, a, we got a guy. We got a guy. And a, and a gal. And holy crap, did they come through. So I was able to get a uh, Danese um, Laguna Seca suit and, and we fitted it really well because in the past I'd always used a 52 and I thought, oh, I'm a 52 because I'm an average build. Well, this ended up being a 104, which is a, a long, a 52 long. And holy crap, did that make all the difference in the world? I don't know. The fact that there is off the rack suits that are that different where I, okay, this fits way better, like notably better than a normal off the rack 52, which is a standard like Euro size, right? So first off, that was rad. Um, second off, using the boots, the Danese uh, boots. I'm, I can't remember the, the. I forget what model you have. The ends though. That yeah, go and that was the, the neat thing. Yeah, I up to this point had been running boots that are outside of the leathers, and they're usually super clunky, difficult to manage, and frankly, I think look goofy. I think they're the torque in boots. Torque in, yeah. The well, torque. they're called torque. There's a torque boot, and then there's a torque in and a torque out. Uh, this, you had the torque ins because they go into the leathers. Into the leathers. So this is my first experience with that, and holy crap, did it work well? It's cool, right? It was so comfortable, and there's Velcro in the leathers that Velcro to the top of the boot, so it just stays. I don't know why anyone would want a boot on the outside of the leathers after doing this. And, and then the boots are light and small, and but not, but not still clunky. super structural. Yeah. So that was neat. Yeah, I was pretty stoked by that. Um, the gloves, which are gnarly and with titanium and stuff and, and set in them. And that was really cool. Danese gloves that were pretty rad. And they broke in and all this stuff broke in like 
Like it was almost like it didn't need to be broken. I did a street ride uh, a couple few hours with the gloves on because that actually can be really problematic. If you get to thing. a track yeah. and your gloves aren't broken, you will have issues. And I still that I, I you still takes it takes like super getting sweaty and gnarly to get them really fit to you there's only that's the only way it happens sure um but you definitely the, can't judge a pair of gloves on your first wearing of them no nope. you gotta you run got, them like, like a week you gotta run them so yeah. i did and it was great and then the agv helmet which was really good like surprisingly good uh, uh you were I, in the corsa r i believe and it was are you kidding me? This is amazing, right? So I uh, was pretty stoked by all of the gear, every single thing, because I got immediately comfortable, didn't have any issue, back protector, chest protector, right in, no issue, uh, ambulatory all the way, all the feelings, all the, all the goods. It was really cool. And then the helmet was very slippery, and you could you could tell um, after wearing d- other different helmet manufacturers for a long time. It was amazing how arrow um, that helmet was and great feeling. And then with the, um, the pin lock on the screen was also pretty cool too. So, um, all the gear, the fact that it all worked in synchronicity was of note and that it was all super comfy right off the bat. And it looked, of course it looked wicked, right? It made your butt look pretty good. Yeah. I just want to bring it up. Cause I just remember, I forget what bike you hopped off of, but you were something like, dude, these leathers are rad. This was awesome. And it was the most unsolicited kind of thing you could, you could possibly say about a yeah, product and i sure. just want to make sure we shared it with everyone because it's like you know, sit here and it's like yeah okay guess who's paying our lunch today but like no it's legit they're paying for our lunch because we believe in the product yeah for sure so so if 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 that compels you to go find out more dainese has corporate owned stores that are full of only dainese and agv gear they're in san francisco orange county and chicago with stores coming in orlando uh, New York and Los Angeles soon. So go there and you'll find a store full of specialists in this gear. They'll get you fitted up, get you rock and rolling, just like they did with Quentin. And the boots were really, the, the, the left-hand boot was made it really easy to put the kickstand up. Oh, wow. Did it. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> just ruin that ad. <laughs> All right, Quentin, super excited that we got to sit down with Miguel at Coda and talk about, we didn't really talk about Aprilia stuff that much. We just talked about bikes. It was just cool because he's such a laid back dude. It was so cool to just have a conversation about motorcycles, like just like as we do here with the podcast. Yeah, and it was eerily similar in a different way to sitting down with Kevin Schwantz and just interviewing somebody, talking about bikes, talking about stories, having a good time, not really worrying about having an agenda or thinking about any particular thing. We're just ch- chatting and it was really cool and it, it flowed really well. So yeah, again, we're, we're in the pit box in the garage at Coda. There's a lot of bikes still on track and people coming by and talking milling about milling around, but probably trying to get their own little version of the live, uh, podcast experience. <laughs> so bask in the glow, if you will, because they can't come to our live show, but, uh, I think super, super interesting interview. Well worth a listen. So here it is. So Miguel, first off, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. It's been, it's been, a, it's been a day full of uh, Aprilia's, and it's been great to have you uh, here, providing your your insight on uh, the RSV4 and the Tuono. I think for some of our listeners, know they they probably know some of the bikes that you've had a hand in designing and making, but maybe 
don't know which ones you've touched. So can you provide maybe a background uh, on kind of like your your professional resume, as it were? Oh, my, my profession. At least the top five, right? Ah, shit. You know, I've been, I've been involved in, in motorcycle, I mean, motorcycle industry for almost 30 years. So that's a long time and a lot of bikes. A lot of, you know, good things and bad things, you know, but again, uh, what we are testing today is one of the best examples when, you know, in our case, in Aprilia, the racing department, engineering department and design department worked together with one goal in mind, which was at that time, you know, we are talking about 2006, you know, to win the world championship the first time up. And in order to do that, uh, we needed something unique. And again, what you have here, and as I said this morning, uh, we got a great design from the start. You know, the great designs, you know, last a long time. You just need to fine tune them. Uh, to go back to your question, you know, uh, my, my first bike, and the one that stays, you know, in my mind forever is the 900 Super Sport for Ducati that I did in, in 1989 or something like that. Uh, because I, it represents a lot of uh, naive thinking of a new young designer that you know, can really do a lot of stuff without thinking. Which, you know, it doesn't mean that we still do it, not do it like that, but you know, we, we kind of think a little bit more. But uh, that's the first bike, you know, what I remember cutting. I, at the time, I have a 750 Sport yeah. from 87. That was a pretty crappy motorcycle. But I remember cutting the fairing and trying to convince my boss, you know, is that that's the bike we should be doing because you have to see the engine and that kind of thing. And it worked fine. I mean, that's why we did, you know, the half fairing of, I think it was 1990, 91. Were you responsible for... The complete design of the 900 Supersport and 900 Supersport CR? No, I mean, when we talk about complete design, that's an ex I mean, aesthetic. <laughs> I'm, sh I'm sorry, I should mean the aesthetic. Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, and I tell you the story because it's a very funny story. Um, again, it's just one of those stories that is never going away. Uh, I, I used to work in Varese where Kajiva was. Yeah. yeah. Ducatis in Borgo Panigale, and, and we would go back and forth, you know, during these 80s and 90s. This thing. is when the Castiglionis. Castiglioni on Ducati, and, you know, Kajiva and Ducati were one, and we worked, you know, back and forth and stuff. Uh, one day I got a call, you know, from my boss at that time, he said, what are you doing? Well, mostly nothing. So, go to this address. He gave me an address. No, because we were working in, you know, at that time we were doing scooters, trying to figure out if the market for the scooter for Kajiva would other stuff. So he said, go to this address, and he gave me an address in outside the, at the outskirts of Borgo Panigale. I got, you know, to this place, and it was a, a carpenter shop. So I presented myself to the guy. So yeah, yeah, how are you, how are you, how are you? This was an old guy. You all pattern maker, you know, for engines. Huh. And he said, yeah, yeah, come, come. I got the thing here. And he took me out to the back of his shop, and he had a frame, which was, you know, the 900 Super Sport, which was an, evol an evolution of the 750 yep. Sport. I said, this is the bike. And I said, what, what? I didn't know. 
So the first thing I ask him, you know, is to can we take it back to Ducati? And that's how it started. But there were many parts that were already done, like for example the headlight, uh, the the rear part of the frame, you know, going to the seat. Because the project was started and stopped and started ah. and stopped, and so at one point you know says, yeah, okay, let's finish it up. Call this guy, you know, that is there, and let's do it. So the were at that time would they use clay mock-ups or foam or we my me getting into Kajiva at that time when we took in 1987, 88. Yeah, we introduced the clay yeah. into the motorcycle making. Because until that point, everything was done in bondo, yeah, or fiberglass and bondo, uh, or wood, or gesso, uh, uh, which is uh, yep. I don't know how you say that. In Paper mache. No, 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 no. The ones that you do the molds in the yeah. in the houses. Yeah, uh, I, I can't remember what you, you call know? it. Gesso, uh, <laughs> like plaster. Plaster. Yes. Yeah, plaster. So that was the kind of materials you know were mostly used at that time. So we introduced the clay, and the first thing I remember we did in clay was the Paris-Dakar bikes, because huh. they would allow them to get you know fiberglass molds very fast, you know, in shapes that were impossible to recreate because of the gas tanks. So the twin headlight you know, elephant. Exactly. Did you design that? The, the Paris-Dakar, we did that in 19, I think, 1991. The one that won, you know, was done in clay for the first time to create that shape to get all the gas tanks, you know, put together. Huh. Uh, then the production bike at the time was already done by somebody. Ah, okay. I think it was Turin. In, in Turin, somebody did it. And that was the way, you know, the system of creating motorcycles. They would do the base, and then they would send the bike to some place, you know, to do the thing. Without thinking that you could do much better than that. So going back to the story of the, the Super Sport, then we brought it into Ducati, and I did the half fairing first. You know, we did it, boom. Presented to the mar the commercial people and said, no, we're not gonna sell this bike. What you mean? Yeah, no, no, if you don't give us the full fairing, we're not gonna sell it. We want the full fairing. The problem, we were four days away from Cologne in 1991, I think it was. And I remember my boss turned around me and said, can we do it? Yeah, no problem. So what we did, we had the half fairing, you know, we already did the fairing and we used the, the turn signals of the A51 yep. in the shape. Yep. But since we did it only have four days, you know, which one was, you know, traveling to Cologne with the bike, we got pieces from the A51 and we put it together with Bondo. <laughs> <laughs> and we got a, I remember a, a radius, you know, big radius from the beginning of, you know, where the, the turn signal would come out. And we did a full radius all the way to the bottom of the fairing and create enough an air intake underneath yeah. you know, to get the engine cool. Huh. Was the A51 a, a tambourine? No, no, it was done still the way you know I was talking about. Somebody did it some pieces, they put it together. No, but the designer, was no, it, no, so no. it was just all over no, the place? No, 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 the designer was, it was, some pieces were done inside. Oh, got it, okay. Some pieces were done inside. No, Tamburini was in charge of the first 916. And he did the Passos, right? 
and he did the Paso, which was originally a Kajiba, not a, not a Ducati. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's another story. For uh, that, that, you're, <laughs> the, the, now that we're the, talking the to you, story, I'm realizing how, how deep down the hole we could go because, oh my gosh, this is yeah, awesome. The story for the 900 Super Sport, it was a beautiful, not flat, you know, kind of, you know, fairing, which had a very nice radius all the way from the bottom to the top. Yeah. The problem is we took it to Cologne, we presented everybody, you know, wow, 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 wow. The problem, Cologne, at that time, lasted 10 days. So the bike stood under the lights for 10 days, so the bondo <laughs> went like that, shrank, shrank. <laughs> the bike came to, Cologne, to Ducati, and they, they were not digitalizing machines or no. anything like that, so they just got, you know, a few shapes of, you know, lines and stuff like that. And the bike went in production. After the trunk. Almost, you know, skin. <laughs> but it was not intended to be like that. Then the rest is history, but that's, you know, part of, you know... To me, that's why that bike represents, you know, that moment in which you, as a designer, anything could be done, but uh, there is more than just, you know, creating yeah. one shape and doing, you know, sure. the right thing. But that's universally loved motorcycle. I, I've always loved both the half fairing and the full fairing. That's uh, <laughs> beautiful. I think still, you know, it's a very modern bike for today. Yeah. Because it still is the simplicity. And again, yeah. my philosophy, you know, the simplicity lasts forever. Yeah. Uh, to make things, you know, the way we are doing it now, you know, complicated and big. Get tired, you know, the next, you know, the next six months. And the simplicity transfers for somebody like myself on the technical side to disassembling that bike. It's yeah. so easy <laughs> to get to the battery, to get to to, exactly. do, to adjust the valves on a yeah. 900 Super Sport. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. one of the simplest things you could ever do. It's it's, uh, there's only like 10 bolts. Uh, yeah. So now I can't imagine how many bolts it would take to get well, on the new Super Sport. Well, right. well, not even not even the fact of how many bolts, but now Ducati's got a you don't want the bolts exposed, they're in really hard to reach places. Oh, but you know, yeah. Do you know what's the yeah. other aspect that we, we are not considering? Yeah, homologations, you know, laws and all sure. that kind of stuff is forcing many of these things that you cannot take apart. Well, that's that's what I wanted to so, ask you next. You know, how much has designing changed from when you started to now? I mean, are you still building with clay models, or are you working more digitally? What are there new things like like emissions and noise that you have to take into effect, or, or work you know, with my, engineering? My and I wouldn't call it philosophy, but my way of doing stuff in general is in the moment you are in, you use the tools that are available to you. So. To me, to design a motorcycle, it's not that you have to do it in clay. It's not that you have to do it in, in 3D or whatever. It's not that you have to do it in one place because... And i give you an example of what I'm saying. Uh, in 2014, I was in a hotel in New York at 3 o'clock in the morning, working in the computer, modifying a file that was going in an hour after that to Italy that they were expecting, you know, they were in the morning, you know, in Italy, expecting this file, that they were milling all these parts that I would get to see. Attention in the pit and paddock. Attention in the pit and paddock. If you've parked next to the picnic tables outside of Building L, you will need to move your car prior to 5 p.m. tonight as we have another event coming in. No problem. If you're parked out by the picnic tables next to Building L, 
please plan to move your vehicle prior to 5 p.m. tonight. Thank you. We are so, definitely at the track. <laughs> exactly. So that file went to Italy through the whatever, you know. Is, yeah. Three days after I was in Italy, we were putting together a prototype and we went to, to Milan in 2014 with the MGX-21, which was something that was designed, I could tell you, in three different parts of the war, in three different moments completely different. Huh. It's not a completely new bike, but it's a whole package that we did in order to create a prototype in a very short time for a show. We went to the show and everybody went crazy, yeah, but this is... As usually happens, this is a show prototype. They're never going to put it in production. The response was so, you know, strong that after that, we already had the files and we were able to put the bike in production in less than a year. Wow. So, again, my way of thinking is, okay, we are here and we need to solve this problem. What are the tools available? All these. We got so many tools today that there is not only one. And that's, you know, the advantage we have today as designers and engineers or anything, creating motorcycles. You're, the, if you're, if you're going to start a clean sheet, so if, if you got a directive to design the next super sport tomorrow, would you start with a pencil? Would you start with uh, a Wacom tablet? Would you start with uh, markers? What would, no, what would be the beginning? I, I, I would start with a, with a dinner you know, among the people involved in the team that we're going to work. I understand that, but I mean, if there's going to, if you... And then, no, 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 but, but let me finish, because, you know, that's the point. Yeah, yeah, I get when you. we start talking, then ideas start, you know, okay, we can do this, we can do that, we can do that, we can, and then the pair, the, the napkin comes out, and, and then the thing, you know, starts from there. I can tell you, that bike, you know, the Tron and the RSV4 was born like that. We were in a table, you know, five of us, you know, drinking a beer, and in mind going to win the world championship superbike we had the first year and we were just thinking you know what we could do and we cannot do and no matter if you were an engineer or designer or whatever you know we will get every night you know to the same place to eat because we were you know all living in different places so we were in the hotels and we will go to eat the same and that was you know when the thing starts and it doesn't matter if it has a paper or not again what I mean, and I get my pencil, and then I show you this. It could be done like that, and that sketch there just is already creating in the other minds of the you know, yeah. the next idea. So to me, uh, the napkin sketch, as they call it, yeah. you know, in the design world, is the first, the first, you know, moment in which the idea starts. Okay. Then I guess what I mean is, once you need to give a rendering to the important people within Aprilia beyond your, your design team, when you have to, to show renderings, is it mostly done on computer now? Or oh, yeah. It, yeah. I mean, we don't show renderings anymore. We fool the sh out of them because we have videos and you can walk around the bike Yeah. and you can see the whole thing there. And, and most of the time we get up and say, let's go and see the prototype. <laughs> No, we have to do it. Yeah. So that's that's as I as I said before, these are the tools we yeah, have. You have that big I mean, of a tool for sure. A sketch is for the group that is yeah. working on the project to clear ideas out. Uh, renderings, what the renderings used to be, right now are becoming videos in which you know you're right yeah. walking around the bike. So the complete the steps are are different in a sense that the sketch 
I mean, before, we would show a sketch to these people, you know, that have to make decisions, and they would say, yeah, but they are not understanding what they were looking at. Today, everybody understands a film. Everybody understands TV, what is going on, or whatever. So that is helping us, the, the decision process, as to be more, to be, to, to be made faster. What about like virtual reality goggles, like Oculus and those kind of things? Is that something that, that's in your toolbox, or is that too far out? In, in, in case of motorcycles, the step of having that video and creating the, the prototype is very short. Okay. Uh, one, as I said before, once we have this thing in video, we can mill all the parts, you know, in a couple of weeks and okay. have the prototype. Because, you know, the size of what we are talking about is something sure. cheaper and faster to do. So, for us, the virtual reality is kind of a, you know, you need to sit on the bike. You need to feel it. Okay. So, for us, is the next step. We do the prototype. Gotcha. gotcha. And then we jump on the bike and see, oh, this is good or this is bad. I imagine one of the difficulties in your job is with Piaggio, you have a house of brands that you have to mind. And they're all very different. Between Aprilia, Motoguzzi, Piaggio itself, Vespa. How do you interpret each brand? And, and what are the difficulties in, in, in making sure that no one of the machines blend over into each other? I, I think... You know, if you think it from the outside, you think it's a problem, but uh, Piaggio is divided, when we talk about design and engineering, in two parts, you know, scooters and motorcycles. Uh, in the design department, the, the designers work, you know, cross, you know, they do whatever they feel doing it. But having this separation, you know, we have two brands, in our case, in the motorcycle part, is that Motoguzzi and Aprilia, they are very clear, you know, what they need to be doing. So as a designer, you can change, you know, shirts, you know, going from a very classical kind of approach or traditional or very Italian way of traveling, like in the case of Gucci, to going, you know, to Cota and spending, you know, an afternoon going, you know, trying to beat Marquez in your mind because you nobody can do it, but, you know. No, but that's, you know, that's part of, you know, what Aprilia is. Aprilia is about that. You know, Aprilia is about, you know, having technology, that you can enjoy in this context that, you know, again, everybody that rode the bike today, you know, is kind of, wow, you know, enjoy it enormously. So it's not a problem. You know, we have the two brands. The two brands have different values. They are, we are always Italian in this case. And, and it helps us, you know, move from one side to the other one pretty well. So as a designer, it's only a... It's only a, a, a chance of be able to flex your brain in two different directions. On top of that, we have the scooters, you know, which is a different, complete approach. And again, that's a different thing. And being able to do it sometimes, you know, it keeps you away, you know, from doing the same thing here. So you, you understand other problems on the other side, and then you come back. And so it's only, a, to me, from a designer's point of view, it's only an advantage. How do you? keep up with trends or predict where like the taste of people will go i mean because it takes it takes a long time for a bike to come from from that that dinner table meeting with the beers to being in the showroom where i can go buy one so how do you how do you gauge that uh, you know what one of the reasons i mean piaggio's in california is because of that you know we we came there i think it's 2011 12 and the idea is to have a window in a different world that we knew, especially the president of Piaggio knew it was changing rapidly. And if we would have stayed, you know, stayed in Italy there, 
you know, we would miss a lot of things. So you're saying the design center for Piaggio is in Southern California? Is that what you No, mean? we have we have a, a Piaggio Advanced Design Center in okay. Pasadena yeah. that works mostly in, I mean, for the last year and a half, too, we've been working in motorcycles because there is the need. But the idea, the original idea for being there, you know, people come from Italy, they go walk, you know, by LA, you know, go to Pasadena sure. and understand that the war is not only one thing that you see while you are in, in Italy. Yeah. You know, you know, you walk the streets, you know, in Pasadena, you see in a matter of, you know, 300 feet, 50 different people from 50 different countries. And that to be for somebody that is in Italy and it's very difficult to understand that, being there, it gives you, it opens your, your mind automatically. So uh, that's part of, you know, how we are trying to get this thing into the, the regular kind of thinking when you are thinking ahead in maybe three or five years. Uh, and as designers, and as I always said, you know, we are sponges. You know, we need to absorb, we absorb everything that is going on around us. More we absorb, more we're going to transfer this in what we are going to do. You know, for example, now, you know, being in the hand-built motorcycle show here in Austin, and at the same time as MotoGP, you got, you know, the two brands, you know, that we have, that they can live in the same context. And, and again, looking at some details in the hand-built motorcycle show, looking at you guys, you know, riding the bikes here, or, seeing the MotoGPs the other day. So as a designer, this is, you know, it's a hundred million, you know, information in, in just a couple of days. So it gives you only the, the more, I wouldn't call it spiritual, but, you know, it fits you in order, you know, to see what, what's next. You know? Inspiration? Do you call it inspiration? I, I don't think it's inspiration. It's part of, you know, your, your being. I mean, in my case, you know, if I don't have it, you know, I feel sick. Yeah. So you need to go and get, you know, just been sitting here and see here in the noise, you know, going through. Yeah. It gives you, you know, the things here and, <laughs> and then something is going on. Yeah, yeah, something is going on. So, again, I think it's, it's important for, it's not a matter of inspiration, it's be part of stuff, you know. And, and again, then sometimes, you know, you get your paper and then you put it down and then it's something that then it becomes something else. I know we saw you at the uh, one show in Portland, and on, you just you know we're at the Handbolt this weekend. Those are two events, in my opinion, that are very good at attracting younger motorcyclists or people who are younger in age to get involved with motorcyclists. How do you see the the motorcycle engaging this younger generation, and and what do you think we'll see coming from bikes that, to appeal to them? Uh, I think they're the the point of an arrow that they are showing, you know. I mean, not only people, not only young, the young crowd of you know, motorcyclists coming in, but even to manufacturers. How to go back to certain basic stuff that makes a lot of sense, you know, especially in the world we are living in today. You know, uh, we were having a discussion the other day with some people at the show. And cyclically, we get into these moments in which, you know, the industry gets in trouble. In trouble because you know the, the, the demographic changes and the world changes you know especially you know if you think in the last 10 days 10 years you know motorcycles have changed a lot you know that bike you know to think about that to honor RSV4 10 years ago with all the electronics corner in ABS 
you know, five years ago was a crazy idea. Today you have it already in production. Yeah. Uh, we were talking about seamless, you know, gear, you know, yeah. gears. So it's a stuff, you know, that <laughs> doesn't stop. But on the other side, we have to keep in mind, you know, where the buyer is, what the buyer is, what the needs of the buyer are. Which is sometimes, you know, again, these are good bikes, you know, to run here. But if you want to commute in LA, you're going to need a different kind of bike. That commuter guy is the same guy that is commuted in Bangkok. And it's the same guy who's commuting today in Jakarta, and it's the same guy who's commuting in Sao Paulo. So the needs there are completely different from what we are talking today here. Right. So this shows, to me, as a designer and as a motorcyclist first, more than designer, is telling me that. Because I've seen it, you know, in, I've seen it. I live it. You don't remember because you are young, but in the 60s and 70s, there was a whole scene of custom bikes, you know, coming along because there was no bikes. Then the Japanese came along and changed yeah. the whole industry. And what they did, they did a few things, very affordable and sustainable for the time, because most of the bikes were very expensive. I always dreamt to have in a Ducati, but I never could afford it. But I could buy a Honda 400F, you know, for cheap money and it was a good-looking bike but you probably modified it uh, but that's the point again yeah. it was always a base in order for you to dream something else so he created you know for a moment I remember I was here the cafe racer scene you know it, it showed you know the head but then the price of the bike you know killed them because you could buy stuff you know like 1,000 you know with a hundred horsepower and double brakes and I mean, to me, the other moment, you know, the GSXR in 1986, you know, it changed, you know, another step of something that that was a racing bike for the street. Yeah. And then the rules were changed again, you know, and, and we are seeing, you know, the last part of that right now. So I think we are in a phase in which, you know, we are rethinking, you know, the way, what we actually need. And these shows, you know, these two shows, like many others, because there are others around the world, and that's the other thing that is common to this moment is that these kinds of shows we have in the US, in the US maybe there are 15 yeah. then you go to Europe and there are another 10 and then you go even to Vietnam and they're doing it themselves, you know, over there too and they are the same kind of people needing something that is completely different from what we have right now so to me it's just it's something that is showing us you know, the way ahead and for me it's the simplicity of something that you can live with and my motto right now is sustainable and affordable. As long as we keep those two things in the mind, we are going to create you know, the bikes that are going to take us you know, from, this, from the next 20 years. So the sustainability, would you, would you mean that by, like we, we were talking about how the RSV4 um, has not had to change very much because it was very good in the beginning. But so that, because that's sustainable. That's you can sustainable. keep that going. I that's mean, we don't need to remake the bike every two years like everybody else. We are just improving. As I said, you yeah. know, Corbett and ABS yep. is a security stuff that anybody can understand and makes a whole difference. So the bike hasn't changed in 10 years and it's not going to change maybe for another five. I don't know. You know, it doesn't matter. As long as people understand that this is evolving satisfying needs you know that the people have and that's you know what makes you know the thing and affordable also doesn't mean that it has to be cheap it's something that you can live with 
and don't kill yourself, you know, because you have to pay the insurance, you have to... So there is a whole bunch of stuff, you know, that if you keep those elements in mind, I think we're going to be okay. You have the hard task, especially for a brand like Aprilia that we're dealing with today. It's a machine that's sold in the U.S. and in Europe, and it's similar as those markets can be, but also very different. So how do you balance that when you're making a motorcycle or designing a motorcycle? What do you mean that is different? Well, just, just in terms of how transportation is being dealt with in, in those different hey, but, countries, but, but, and but, taste, and price. But you see, if you, are, if you are talking about these two bikes, this is something that it became, you know, worldwide. Again, this is a worldwide bike. Right. We were talking about, you know, the 70s and 80s, and, and at that time there were no worldwide bikes. You know, Japanese would do bikes for here, you know, Italians would try to make them look like they would be for. But right now it's not that like that anymore. There is only, you know, certain types of commuter bikes that are like that, like in India, like in other parts of, in Southeast Asia and stuff like that. Latin America too. But these kinds of bikes, you know, Harley-Davidson is able to sell their bikes, you know, all over the place. You know, I remember the beginning of the 80s, you wouldn't even sell one Harley-Davidson in Italy. There was this guy, you know, yeah, yeah, because... I wish you could see the look on yeah. his face. I, I wish I could see that gesticulation that grimacing through. Uh, was, uh, but, I mean, I was... <laughs> if you remember in 1983, I wanted to buy a uh, XLCR, yeah, the, the Cafe Racer, Cafe Racer, yeah. because you know that's one of my favorite bikes. AMF, this is AMF era Harley. AMF Davidson. era Harley Davidson, yeah, the first bike, you know, Willie G yep. designed. So you know, being a myth, you know, of the design world, that was the bike, and that was the first intent to create some Cafe Racer kind of thing because you needed a chain. And this was, I was in Miami living at the time, 82, 83. And I wanted to buy one. And I got a couple of friends, said, are you crazy? This is a piece of junk. And that's, they were a piece of junk at that time. Then people, you know, got, you know, the things, the sleeves up, and they started working from 85. And then the rest is history. But they have to, you know, create a product that had a worldwide appeal. That's our challenge, you know, we cannot design any more bike, you know, for... Because the world right now is, to, is one, more than ever, you know, and that's another aspect, you know, as designers we have to keep... Not as designers, as anything we do, you know, we have to keep in mind. It's the first time, you know, that the guy who we were talking about before, you know, in Sao Paulo, is connected to the guy in Jakarta, to the guy in Santa Monica, to the guy in Milan. So, and that's the first time it happened in human history. So we got a lot of, you know, things, you know, to consider. One of the things that, that keeps me up at night when I look into the, the crystal ball of the future is uh, autonomous vehicles and how that's going to change the transportation landscape, especially in the U.S., maybe not as much in Europe. But I, I try to figure out what motorcycling is going to look like in 10, 15, maybe 20 years as more and more cars on the road are self-driving. Is that something that factors into your long-term planning, or do you have any thoughts on that? Oh, I have a lot of thoughts. Oh. I, I sleep at night, but okay. I try to do it during the day. <laughs> you but, need to tell me the secret but, to that. <laughs> but, you know, uh, I, I personally don't, don't believe in autonomous cars. I mean, we can have them. 
but they're always going to be re relegated to a certain things that they can do well. Because the amount, I mean, we can remove the human aspect of what we do, but then it becomes something else. It's not a car anymore. Right. We can ride the train. Well, that's what we're kind of becoming aware. Right? And and again, I go back to what I said before. The train solves problems, real problems. Autonomous cars don't solve problems because the traffic is still there. In that case, motorcycles or two-wheel vehicles or lightweight mobility, whatever you want to call it, solve problems. And that's why when you go to a city like in, I mean, you, I've been in, in Hanoi, and people right now, they, they have the possibility to buy a car, but they still ride a motorcycle because it's the only way to ride the traffic. And when you understand, I said, I'm going to get in a car and be in traffic because I'm reading a newspaper. When I'll be riding the motorcycle and I'll be there already in 10 minutes. So to me, it's, it's like, okay, we need, it's a good marketing thing, you know, to talk about it. You know, about autonomous cars. Are we solving problems? And that's the question nobody's asking. Are we what problem are we solving? Well, what I'd say is the problem they're solving would be uh, eliminating the human factor from a safety standpoint. That'd probably be the only one. But I, I'm with you on the, you know, you're still just putting another <laughs> wait, car wait, wait, on wait, there. Because the human factor for safety means you have to have better drivers. So then it's a matter of teaching you the way to do the things right. Or giving the license you know, to the people that need. So the, the, the answer is in a different area. Autonomous cars is not solving problems. Maybe autonomous trucks could solve some problems in certain areas. Yeah. You see? Yeah. Because that's, you know, to, for a guy to ride, you know, three days without sleeping, you know, that's not human. But cars, but that's where motorcycles, or let's call it, you know, two-wheel vehicles, because that's broader, they solve problems. And you are seeing, you know, the southern part of the world already doing it. You know, you go to India, you go to, you know, New Delhi, and motorcycles are all over the place. You know, you go to Thailand, and they're all over the place. South America is moving, you know, in motorcycles because it's a cheap way of moving in the cities. Do you think that still applies to the United States, though, where, where automobiles are so already the, the standard mode of transportation? Because... That, that to me seems to be the disconnect of, of why we can't get motorcycling more popular here is because we're such a car culture to begin with. Our roads are built for cars. Our cities are newer. We have bigger roadways. It's not like, you know, I lived in Italy. Like, my apartment was right outside the parking place for all the kids from high school and their scooters because that was the best way to get around. And yeah. it wasn't an, an issue for a young man or a young woman to have a scooter. But where I, in the town I grew up, where I went to high school, there was no way your parents were going to buy your scooter. That's too dangerous. Let's get you a car. I, I you know, the, the, as, I, as you're saying, you know, it's a cultural thing, and no doubt about it. But I, and this is what I noticed in LA. I've seen, I have seen lots of, you know, 20 something riding bicycles in, in LA, which, if I would have told you this 20 years ago, I'd say, are you crazy? Like, yeah. What are you talking about? I still think so, they're crazy. Yeah. <laughs> no, no. But no, yeah, you're right. You know, they do the it. They the do point it. is not a matter of craziness. It's what you need at the moment to do what you, you know, in this case, you are going to work in a bicycle. The bicycle allows you, you know, when you get to your work, you put it on your shoulder and then you go to whatever and you put it on your wall. That's it. To have a car, it means you have to, besides the traffic, you know, you have to park. You have to, 
So it's all a, it's a hassle. With all the hassle we have today, you know, and the way we live, you know, you want that more. So this new generation, and that's why, you know, to me, I'm more interested in the 15-year-olds today, because those are going to be in 10 years, you know, what they're going to be changing. My, you know, my example is, you know, my father was the generation that was driving the car, got the cigarette or the paper, you know, would roll the window down and do like that. Yeah. My generation was the one, you know, growing in Europe, you know, that you put the stuff on your car, you would get home, and you put it in the recycled bin. My kids, they recycle every, I mean, it's just standard. I mean, they don't even think about it. So the next generation of that, the culture, car culture, in certain areas is going to change because of that. Again, if you want to get, you know, deeper, then the jobs, you know, don't pay that much. Yeah. So the money to spend in a car, Uber, that's the best example. Lyft, you know, it's a, it's a symptom of something that needs to be changed. <laughs> I never thought of that oh, as a yeah. symptom, but it's true. Uh, uh, you know, yeah. who needs a... I mean, yeah? I know lots of my, my son's friends say, why do I need a car for? I've been to school, you know, at Center, you know, in Pasadena, and they are transportation designer students that don't own a car. In the 80s, when I went there, you know, Mustang, whatever, you know, everybody. we could be everybody, because sure. that was the way. And if you talk to these kids, I mean, these kids, you know, they are 20-something, you know, they said, no, we are thinking in a different way. Tell me more, you know, because this is the way, the way ahead. So it's not going to change radically, but definitely you're going to see different different ways of maybe, again, two-wheel vehicles are going to be there, are going to make the difference once more. What do you see for the future in terms of electric vehicles, hybrids, yeah. and how that trickles into We talked about with you for a while once. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there is a future, a very bright future. You know, if you think about the war, you know, the amount of sun, the parts of the world that you can, as a homeowner, charge your house and restore your energy and ride your scooter or two-wheel vehicle or motorcycle the next day to work, that's not a future too far away. And that's where, again, when we talk, you know, we were talking about batteries. Batteries right now, with all what is going on right now in the country, you know, with the new government and stuff, maybe it slows down for a couple of years. But the thing is, um, the war is going in another direction. So for the U.S., you know, that's imperative to be part, because if not, it's going to come from China. I just saw recently, I was just reading this article where power companies, and I can't remember which state that this was in, it might have been Texas or Nevada, are now actively starting to go against... Uh, people putting solar panels on their house and get, putting back in to the to the grid. Yeah. And the begin, you know, for the longest time, it was, oh yeah, come on, bring that on, because it was so small, it was piecemeal, and it made them look good, it made them look green, that they were allowing people to basically reverse the the spinning yeah. wheel of exactly. that. Right. And I looked into it for my house here in Oregon. You would think Oregon, a very environmentally friendly, very green state, they literally invented recycling. 
And if I put solar panels on my house, I can offset my bill, but I don't get a credit if I put money back into the grid. Yeah. Which which is so, kind of so silly. So this, this is what my point to this is. Until we get through this awful time of uh, oil, which which is going to be still a while, and and the and the greed of the capitalism, uh, not just capitalism, but the greed part, the unfettered part, uh, that that I I feel oil is, is a, a big part of. Uh, it's going to be tough to do that, but so many people are doing it, and I think you're right, you and it, it's just a given that it's going to happen. I think that's a perspective when you live here in the U.S. Yeah. That's something you know, that makes me wonder because if you go to China, and I got a chance to meet some students in Italy, you know, they were exchanging, you know, with Biagio, yeah. so, and these kids, you know, maybe 18, 20, they are already in the battery thing. Everybody's riding a bicycle with a battery, and they say, "How did you solve the problem of charging the battery?" No, no, we don't charge the battery. We will go to the places where they sell uh, cigarettes. And you get in the battery with a lead, you know, whatever small battery it is, and for I don't know, it's five bucks. They give you another one. So you keep on, you know, traveling around the city without even worrying about the range. The range that's, is a myth. That's gas. Uh, that's just a gas station, basically, right? It's yeah, making exactly. gas stations for it, which is something exactly. that we're we're dealing and, with. Huh? And from that aspect, you know, the th- you go to Germany. Germany in 2032 is going to be completely, you know solar run does it make sense you know they have you know half the day the year without the sun yeah, right. but they can do it because yeah. then you have the wind so there is again when you're talking about greed I think it's even worse than that because you can be greed and you know that you're greed and it's okay it's a short sighting you know kind of thing Yeah. because if you would jump today again the US would be number one in everything we are talking about but the way, you know, the short-sightedness, the stupidity of, you know, yeah. keeps you keeps you looking at, you know, the two things that you have here instead of understanding that this could be the, is, is the new thing. Yeah. New thing. It's not new. No. But it's something that is going to bring us, you know, forward, not backwards. You know, and that's the point. So to bring it back, how do you take all this information, all this data points, and apply it to what you're working on? Well, we presented in November the electric Vespa. Yeah, that was you know the first thing. We have an electric mode bicycle, assisted pedal bicycle, and that was you don't know. No, 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 no. I saw oh, that. You know? yeah. no, but I was looking at the. I was thinking in my wait, head wait. also the. Uh, uh, this is again. These are two elements which they seem small. Not the Vespa because an Vespa electric sure, is. Sure. It's been a shock. You know, everybody wants one. You know, right now is design. Yeah, all that. Yeah. Besides the design, but the idea of having a Vespa that is electric. Wow. You know, chin. Electric bicycles, you know, pedaling, that could go to a certain speed. And our idea is you start from there because you can become something else because you are still light. Okay. I mean, we can make the batteries in a tunnel, but still we have a lot, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a different way of thinking. So what is, you know, appealing for me as a designer is that you can think the things in a completely different way. So when you see electric bikes, you know, I saw the, the flag tracker from Alta, I think it is, uh, the, the Portland thing. And that's, you know, that's the, perf- the first time you see something that is just perfect as size, as, you know, as what you need, what you actually need. 
I don't think he knows. So I work for Alta. Good. Okay. <laughs> I just didn't. Good. Just I'm, didn't. Out, I'm, I'm highly outnumbered. <laughs> Good. Uh, I just, I, I, that's a, it's of note, and I, I'm glad you saw that yeah. and that, that you feel this way. Uh, that was very... my idea to go to Portland to see it because I knew that they were going. And what I saw was, I saw, you know, I knew the motocross bikes. Yeah. You know, from sure. a few years before. I think we met, you know, we got a chance, you know, to talk with the people in Milan, yeah. one show and stuff. But when I, the first time I saw the, that package in that thing, that's the direction, you know, when the things are going to start changing because it's light, it's small, it's compact. It's, that's, again, affordable and sustainable. That's more, it's solving problems. Then you can go flat tracking, which is more fun too. <laughs> right. You know. <laughs> <laughs> well, Miguel, I think uh, I think we've covered a lot of topics. I don't want to keep uh, any more of your time. No, no, no problem. I mean, again, we are we are here to enjoy the day of motorcycle. You know? Yeah, we, we definitely we've, did we've that. Done, we've yeah, done, we definitely enjoyed well. some, I know, some I know, I know your faces. And so. and, yeah. and as a, a personal aside, I will say that the one of probably the most important moments uh, for me would have been. I don't know if it was 93, probably late 93 or early 94, picking up most likely a Cycle World or a Sport Rider magazine and seeing the monster, right? <laughs> that, was a, that was a pretty crucial moment for me of excitement. And when I still see that one image, which would have been the press image, three-quarter view of a monster from that era, that still evokes a lot of emotion. Uh, so thank you for that. You know, to me, thank you, thank you. And, and I think, you know, to me, what represents that moment as my professional thing is when you can demonstrate that with very little you can do a lot yeah. of stuff yeah because the bike you know and i still own the prototype you know the bike was an a51 modified yeah. in three things with two pieces and the investment you know at the moment was a joke in relation to what the company was making at the time which we're going to stop there because if not then we're going <laughs> we'll go right in another down direction uh, understood yeah. for absolutely well, so thank so, you very much so that's that's you know and again it's, it's I'm finishing it's still so important today because what we had in mind at the time is still after 25 30 years it makes more sense today than ever yeah you know so yeah and I think your feeling you know was divided by a uh, enjoyed by many many people oh, yeah. the same way very much so good all right great. okay <laughs> well, thank, thank you, you very, very much, much Miguel my yeah. pleasure all right Quinn I think that just about wraps up this show for us yeah the only bummer about that interview was we didn't get to talk about kickstand design we didn't at all we we of all we the people. had such we had we had it up both ways right we could have talked to Miguel about design. Yeah. We could we could have talked to Romano about like just metallurgy and <laughs> and and structural integrities and pivot points. Yeah. So we missed that. We missed that opportunity. We weren't on our on our A game there. No, but you know what? I was able to put mine up pretty easily on the Aprilias that we rode. So actually, you know, it's funny. I I tried to get a picture of it, but you had a tendency to leave your kickstand down. Oh, the irony! After you, they put the bike on the on the stands for you. Yeah. But then, like, I went to go take a picture, and one of your little buddies came over and kicked it back up. They kicked it. They had your back. Yeah. Yeah. Can I kick it? Yes, I can. Yes, I can. Can I kick it? Yes, I can. <laughs> okay. Can I kick it? All right. So, if you don't 
intro the show with shimmy shimmy ya then you're gonna have to do can i kick it by tribe called quest yes yes indeed once again we want to remind our listeners that this episode was brought to you by Danizy. Danizy d stores you can find their locations in san francisco orange county chicago orlando stores soon to come in new york and los angeles and there you can find all the Dainese and AGV products that your heart desires. Helmets, leathers, gloves, boots, back Boot, protectors. Boots and pants and, and boots and pants and boots and, and, boots and, and pants. pants. So thank you again for their support. Right on. Thank you very much, Dainese. All right, sir. Uh, another good conversation with you. Right on. See you out there. Later. Let me hit record. Nice. Like a pro. Twice. Twice. I got I got counters and I got levels. And I got boots and pants and boots and pants and boots and pants. Counters. Counter counter arguments. The, the, that's the key. I gotta look for the counting of the of the time stamps.